0: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your guide through the Victorian wilderness, the thickets of esoterica, and literary mansplainer-in-chief Michael Ian Black. It is, as always a joy and delight to be with you. Last night, the family and I went to go see a production of Much Ado About Nothing by William Shakespeare. Hey, Shakespeare, we saw you play last night. Not bad. And it was not bad at all. This was the Hudson Valley River Players, I want to say, they've been around a long time. They do their productions at Boscobel, which is in Phillipstown, New York, or thereabouts, uh, on the site of a gorgeous 18th century manor house. Okay. And it overlooks the Hudson River. You can see all of West Point from the grounds, yay, half a mile as the crow flies distant. And... On it set in this incredible Vista is a big tent, not like a circus tent, but like a big, you know, like a professional, well, I guess, I guess it could be a circus tent if it's Cirque du Soleil. And there's a, there's theater seating in there and then they do shows. So it's the first time I've ever been, I'd heard it was terrific. Um, I can't say I spent the day all excited because I was going to see Shakespeare. Hey, Shakespeare, I wasn't that excited. The day was rainy and overcast. And you think, oh, well, that's not, that's not going to be fun. You know, it's, uh, it's it's basically an outdoor theater, but it's under, it's covered. And uh, we went. By gosh and by gall, it was terrific. Terrific, I say. And what I liked about it in particular was it was a very American Shakespeare. First of all, it was set in 1950s America, and there was nothing... There was there was nothing stuffy about it, you know. Much ado about nothing. It's just a big dumb comedy. Just people running around trying to answer the same question that Thomas Hardy is trying to answer, but in a totally different way. Which is, what is the nature of marriage? Why do we marry? Why do we put ourselves together with people under these bonds, in these chains, enwrapped as we are by them? both wrapped in the chain sense and enwrapped in the sense of awe. See, I know how to play with, with language too. Hey, Shakespeare, I know how to play to, with language too. So we went to see it. And I don't think I'd ever seen it before. I certainly knew about it, but I didn't quite know the story. As I say, it's really all—it all it's, all it's all about marriage, nothing but marriage, as romantic comedies so often are. And I guess as romantic tragedy sometimes are too, as proven in Jude the Obscure. Much Ado About Nothing is really like, a it's like a very long episode of Three's Company. Or I should say Three's Company is like a very short episode or reading of Much Ado About Nothing. It's just a lot of people overhearing each other. That's mostly what it is. It's just a lot of people hiding behind things, listening to other people talking about them and, uh, and getting foolish ideas foolish notions based on hearsay. And we've seen some hearsay in this book, too. Phillotson listening to Arabella gossiping. I mean, Arabella is the chief gossip, I guess, in this book. And I guess all of this to say that marriage is, has been, and perhaps always will be a source of fascination in both comedy and drama highbrow Lowbrow, eyebrow, youbrow, we all scream for ice cream. When we last left off, they were making much ado about something. Phillotson is going to marry Sue again. Gillingham is there. It's all going down the next day. I mean, this is right out of much ado about nothing. Gillingham is there the next day saying, Do it. And Mrs. Edlin, the widow, comes in saying, Don't do it phillotson seems resolute in his desire but we can tell that he's wavering a little bit edlin's given him the business she's saying you know it's the wrong thing to do you shouldn't do it i don't know why you're doing it you're a bad man richard phillotson i hope you're not affronted you know and he's saying no i'm not offended you know you've been so nice to me until this moment Uh, and she's saying "You you take this whole thing too seriously and again And Much Ado About Nothing, the the, the question that they take most seriously of all is whether or not Hero, who is the daughter of Don Pedro, I think, you know, this big, important person in the town, is virtuous, which is to say, is she a virgin? And she is, but if she is not, and there is some rumor mongering going on that she is not... Then her own father wishes her to be put to death. That is how seriously they take this shit. And the widow Edlin is saying, When I and my poor man were jined in it, we kept up all the junkin' and we kept the junkin' and all, all the week. I don't know what the times be coming to. Matrimony have grown to be that serious in these days that one really do feel a fear to move in it at all. And they certainly took it seriously uh, in Shakespeare's time, and they're certainly taking it seriously now. So back to the book. When Missus Edlin had gone back to her cottage, Phillotson spoke moodily. I don't know whether I ought to do it. At any rate, quite so rapidly. And then Gillingham, who's you know, big pile of pudding, Gillingham says, "Why, if she is really compelling herself to this against her instincts, merely from this new sense of duty or religion." I ought perhaps to let her wait a bit. Now you've got so far, you ought not to back out of it. That's my opinion. I'm making Gillingham more and more into literally just a pile of pudding. That you can tell by my my voice, and I'm now picturing him as just a, a, a bucket of custard on the floor that speaks. I can't very well put it off now, that's true, but I had a qualm when she gave that little cry at sight of the license. Now, never you have qualms, old boy. I mean to give her away tomorrow morning, and you mean to take her. It has always been on my conscience that I didn't urge more objections to your letting her go. And now we've got to this stage, I shan't be content if I don't help you to set the matter right. Phillotson nodded and seeing how staunch his friend was became more frank. No doubt when it gets known what I've done I shall be thought a soft fool by many. But they don't know Sue as I do. Though so elusive, hers is such an honest nature at bottom that I don't think she's ever done anything against her conscience. The fact of her having lived with folly goes for nothing. At the time she left me for him, she thought she was quite within her right. Now she thinks otherwise. Well, yeah. You know, with that Rolling Stone song, wild horses couldn't drag me away. I'm getting the tune wrong. I'm getting the lyrics wrong. And I'm getting the meaning wrong. But I think of Sue as something of a wild horse, galloping this way or that, depending on her mood. You know, she cannot be constrained. Although she is now doing her best to constrain herself. She is now trying to saddle herself with Philotson. And I'm going to unbridle myself, which is a delicious pun that I just came up with from the podcast. Let's I'm going to unbridle. I mean, it's worth repeating unbridle myself from this podcast for a moment and I will be back on Obscure. Hi, friends. Is today the day our wild horse, Sue, will be tamed? Well, let's find out. The next morning came, and the self-sacrifice of the woman on the altar of what she was pleased to call her principles was acquiesced in by these two friends, each from his own point of view phillotson went across to the widow edlins to fetch sue a few minutes after eight o'clock the fog of the previous day or two on the lowlands had traveled up here by now and the trees on the green caught armfuls and turned them into showers of big drops right it's like rain on your wedding day the bride was waiting, and incidentally, we've seen this before in in this book. That uh, the weather tends to reflect the mood. When things turn rainy and gray, bad shit about to go down. Bad juju about to spatter everybody. Everybody going to get spattered with that bad juju. The bride was waiting, ready, bonnet and all on. She had never in her life looked so much like the lily her name connoted as she did in that pallid morning light. Her name connotes a lily? Is there a lily called Bridehead? Now I have to look it up. See, this is the kind of shit that I don't know. I mean, how would I know that? Bridehead lily. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a it's a lily. And it's, it's a delightful looking thing. A star-shaped flower, I would say, comes in a variety of colors, some variegated, some not. But certainly there is a white bridehead lily. And you can... It looks like you can make a headdress out of it, you know, for a wedding. Um, oh, and then here... Just uh, like the fourth thing down, and there's from there's a book called Sexual Politics. So let's see what it says about Sue Bridehead. Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure gives an account of the trials of two rebels. Jude is battling the class system and trying to obtain the Oxford education reserved for the elite. Sue Bridehead has set herself against a number of patriarchal institutions, principally marriage and the church. Uh, right, right, right. Hardy's Jude is a complete human being composed of both sense and spirit, mind and body. In a classic instance of the Victorian Triangle, he's torn between two women who are incomplete beings. Well, I think I've made this point as well, except I think it is a stretch, a big stretch to say that he's torn between them. He really has no regard for Arabella whatsoever. He's not torn between them. And to say that uh, Sue is an incomplete human being, I would say, is also false. Because Sue, in some ways, is more fully realized than any of the other characters because she is so self-contradictory. And that that is true of all people. Like Jude has a nature, and he is true to that nature no matter what. He is patient and kind, right? He is devoted, and where he chooses to put his devotion may change, but the devotion itself doesn't really waver. Sue, on the other hand, is buffeted by constant self-doubt, which is more true to me of a complete human being than not. Arabella, and I'm reading back to the book, is at one pole utter carnality. Oh, that's the word I used. <laughs> Me and Kate Millett, author of Sexual Politics, agree. Uh, and then she quotes, a complete and substantial female animal, no more, no less. Uh, at the other pole stands Sue. Pure spirit they are the familiar lily and rose but sue is a lily with a difference she has a brain yet she is repelled by sense for sue is not only the new woman but by a complex set of frequently unsympathetic defenses at times convincing and at times only a rather labored ambivalence of hardy's own she is the frigid woman as well Hardy is disgusted by Arabella, appalled if intrigued by... Oh, I mean, I could just read this whole thing. He champions Sue through a series of uningratiating maneuvers, but he's always slightly nervous about her. So me and Kate Willett, author of Sexual Politics, fully agree. Well, we don't fully agree. We agree to a certain extent. We, we, we My analysis of... Hardy's *Jude the Obscure*. Having look, I'm just doing a cold read of this book. What do I? What do I know from *Jude the Obscure*? I'm just reading it for the first time. I ain't no. I ain't no scholar despite the fact that I am a literary mansplainer in chief, but that is the prerequisite of a mansplainer. We generally don't know what we're talking about, but we make guesses, you know, and we say them with conviction. And if you say anything with enough conviction, people will think you know what the fuck you're talking about, even when most of the time you do not. However, in this instance, textual analysis of Jude the Obscure, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. At least as it relates to sexual politics. And now I've taken you on a diversion just because I didn't know that a bridehead was also a type of lily. But what's interesting to me now is that uh, he says she had never in her life looked so much like the lily her name connoted as she did in that pallid morning light, right? But then in just that little excerpt I read from uh, Sexual Politics, the author seems to indicate that the rose is, oh yeah, okay, right. Yeah, the rose is carnality. The lily is a kind of purity, purity of spirit. So yeah, that, that image holds. Back to the book. Chastened, world-weary, remorseful. The strain on her nerves had preyed upon her flesh and bones, and she appeared smaller in outline than she had formerly done, though Sue had not been a large woman in her days of rudest health. And I like that expression to describe a woman, a lily in full bloom, rudest health. As if to imply that there is something offensive about the fulsomeness of her figure. Prompt, said the schoolmaster, magnanimously taking her hand. But he, I mean, that's what you want to say to the, to your bride on your wedding day, right? Prompt upon greeting her. Darling, you are prompt. Oh, heavens, I swoon. I mean, who wouldn't swoon at being called prompt? But he checked his impulse to kiss her, remembering her start of yesterday, which unpleasantly lingered in his mind. Gillingham joined them and they left the house. Widow Edlin continuing steadfast in her refusal to assist in the ceremony. Where is the church? said Sue. She had not lived there for any length of time since the old church was pulled down and in her preoccupation forgot the new one. Up here, said Phillotson, And presently the tower loomed large and solemn in the fog. The vicar, and isn't, I mean, there's a little bit of symbolism right there, right? Where is the church, said Sue. She's looking, looking, looking to restore her faith, looking for heavenly glory and knows not where it is, despite the fact that she had known it uh, at that place many years before. And if you recall, they built the new church on the site of the old. So it's in the same place, but it is of a different construction. And she knows that up here, said Phillotson, and presently the tower loomed large and solemn in the fog the vicar had already crossed to the building and when they entered he said pleasantly we almost want candles yeah because it's dark and gloomy in there because their marriage is dark and gloomy we get it you do wish me to be yours richard gasped sue in a whisper certainly dear above all things in the world sue said no more and for the second or third time, she felt he was not quite following out the humane instinct which had induced him to let her go. Right. He is. Uh, we don't know what's going on with Phillotson, really. I don't think Phillotson fully knows what's going on with Phillotson. He's torn here. And yesterday they talked about him. Uh, Gillingham had said, you, you, you should have been more severe with her. When you had the opportunity, you should have refused to let her go. And Phillotson seemed sympathetic to that argument. And it seems like Phillotson's character may also be changing somewhat. His patience has no doubt run very thin with Sue. And when they get testy with each other, again, as they are sure to do, it is hard to say how Phillotson will react. Now, we've known him to be a good guy to this point. Will that continue? We shall see, just after a quick break. Back on Obscure, let's go on reading, shall we? There they stood, five all together, the parson, the clerk, the couple, and Gillingham. And the holy ordinance was re-solemnized forthwith. In the nave of the edifice were two or three villagers, and when the clergymen came to the words, what Goth had joined, a woman's voice from among these was heard to utter audibly, God hath joined indeed, it was like a reenactment by the ghosts of their former selves on the f- of the former scene which had taken place at Melchester. Melchester! Years before, when the books were signed, the vicar congratulated the husband and wife on having performed a noble and righteous and mutually forgiving act. All's well that ends well, he said, smiling. Hey, Shakespeare, they quoted you in the book! Shakespeare, they quoted you right there in the book. He said, smiling, may you long be happy together after thus having been saved as by fire. Uh, That's a that's a little footnote there. Sixty one, a little footnote saved as by fire again from Corinthians. And again, if you recall from last episode, that image of fire. I don't know who raised it first, me or the book but i have talked about sue wanting to be consumed in a cold fire a fire that burns but does not destroy that is what she wants the hell that she wishes to suffer is a hell on earth and it seems as if the parson is accommodating may you live long, may you long be happy together after thus having been saved as by fire so there they are. Remarried, Jude did not appear as I predicted he would not, although, of course, hoped that he would to stop the ceremony. Every time marriage happens in this book, it happens almost anticlimactically. It happens with the same kind of drama uh, that you would have when you go to get your driving license. It isn't the act itself itself, That is romanticized as it was in uh, as it is in current romantic comedies or or even in Much Ado About Nothing. The ceremony itself is almost beside the point. It is all the rigmarole surrounding it that we are meant to think upon, worry over. They came down the nearly empty building and crossed to the schoolhouse gillingham wanted to get home that night and left early he too congratulated the couple now he said in parting from phillotson who walked out a little way i shall be able to tell the people in your native place a good round tale and they'll all say well done depend on it when the schoolmaster got back sue was making a pretense of doing some housewifery as if she lived there but she seemed timid at his approach, and compunction wrought on him at sight of it. Of course, my dear, I shan't expect to intrude upon your personal privacy any more than I did before, he said gravely. It is for our good socially to do this, and that's its justification if it was not my reason. Sue brightened a little. End of chapter five, end of chapter five. So surprisingly to me, anyway, Phillotson is saying, hey, don't worry. I'm not going to touch you. Okay. You get your bedroom. I get my bedroom. We'll be husband and wife, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to force the issue of intimacy. And we know that Sue had been worried about this. My theory was she subconsciously wanted it, not out of enjoyment, but out of torment. She wanted to be tormented by him in that way. Um, it would be willing, of course, I don't mean to say that he would be her in any way because she would allow him to do it and would hide her disgust from him. But I think subconsciously she, part of the deal for her was that part of the deal for her was punishing herself with her own body because she had given her body to Jude in her mind against the against the rule of God. And so how to make amends for that would be to then give her body to Phillotson, in, in accordance with the laws of God, but as a kind of self-sacrifice. So I'm tempted to just, just kind of stop, you know, call it a short episode, right? Cause, you know, we're coming to the end of the book. I sort of feel like I want to drag it out a little bit. We just finished a chapter, it's a natural way to end. Phillotson and Sue are now married. Gillingham has returned to uh, his, his uh, house of desserts. Jude, we know not where he is, either physically or mentally. I mean, we kind of know physically where he is. He's, you know, he's there in Christminster being miserable. We know Sue, I mean, Arabella has his eye on him from afar, you know. She espies him somehow. And has designs on his person. Uh, Phillotson has just been decent again and said, I won't bother you. On the other hand, Sue suspects there's something up with him. Some difference in his character that may make marriage more difficult than before. And as I've said, Phillotson himself seems conflicted over how to comport himself in his role as third husband to Sue. Technically, still the first, but in many respects, the third. First, he was married to her. Then, by societal, what? Not convention, I guess. By common law, uh, she was married to Jude, and now she is married to Phillotson again. So, In some ways, still the first husband, in some ways, the third. Yeah, dang nabbit. I mean, I want to keep reading, but I also want to stretch. You know, I also want to keep this thing going. I think the most important thing to take away from today's episode is that I stumbled on a passage from a book, and it was a book by a smart person. And moreover, the smart person and I seem to agree on most things. In particular... I think we agree on the nature of the sexual politics. I mean, it's right there in the text. I'm not saying I'm any kind of genius, but let's be honest. I'm kind of a genius. (sighs) Really good cast and Much Ado About Nothing. I don't know any of their names. They're also performing Cymbeline and Into the Woods, all of it in repertoire. So you go one night, you see Much Ado, you go the next night, you see Simbling, the next night they're doing Into the Woods. Gorgeous setting. If you get to, if, you, if you're in the area, uh, I think they're almost done with their season, but you go next season. They do it every year. I'm going to go next season. Uh, also, you can buy a picnic uh, dinner. You, you eat there, right there on the ground. I didn't, get, we got them, but it was too wet. So we brought our picnic dinners home. I haven't tasted the food. Shakespeare, I didn't taste the food yet. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Why not? Short episode. You know, it'll leave us all wanting a little bit more. What will become of Jude? What will become of Sue in this new marriage? Will her lily fade? Find out on another horrific episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at obscurewithmichaelianblack at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.